The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Friday, June 10th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And last night was a big night for bullshit. Oh, I don't mean the select committee's purpose or effect. That was real and important. I don't mean the president's lies of a stolen election. They are a lot more pernicious than just bullshit. Bullshit, after all, could be a fertilizer. Maybe his bullshit was the kind of bullshit you smear into an open wound, thus inducing sepsis. Hey, listen, I'm sorry for the imagery. I could not avoid it. It was all around me. Bill Barr was quoted as saying it. I made it clear I did not agree with the idea of saying the election was stolen and putting out this stuff, which I told the president was bullshit. Then, from the dais, Republican congressional member Liz Cheney evoked it. Mr. Jacob said this to Mr. Eastman. Thanks to your bullshit, we are under siege. And eventually, there was more bullshit being flung around than at rodeo clown tryouts. Bill Barr, that it was bullshit. Claims about election fraud are bullshit. Am I allowed to say the word? Uh, yeah. Quote him, bullshit. Yeah. That was George Conway on CNN, John Lovett on Pod Save America, and Paul Rosenzweig on PBS. PBS! I do note that CBS's Nora O'Donnell said BS, just like that, BS, but then noted the committee said the actual word. And on the Fox News channel, they beeped the clip. They played the hearing tape, but they bleeped what was actually said. And then Brett Baer complimented the booth on the quick bleeping turnaround. And we added the beep pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> of course, Fox News, they expurgated the entire hearing. That was on the Fox News business channel that they actually discussed what was going on in our democracy or the end thereof. Newsmax was there to supposedly play the full hearing. We'll get into that. But if you could tell me talking about who said what and when, yeah, I did all this for you. I watched all of the coverage of the hearings, all of the networks, a few podcasts. I overheard a couple guys in line waiting to get bagels this morning. And what I want, what I would like to listen to a day after such a thing is a compendium of all the wisdom and insight the day before. But of course, I don't have hours and hours, so I will cut down and give you just the important insight so that you can understand how this hearing was understood and how it was framed. Not like Trump was framed, more like semiotics framed. So I did this for you. I watched all of it. I bring it to you, edited down in the spiel as a primer a tasting menu pulled from everything said by all the pundits, all the anchors, all the reporters, namely David Muir, Jonathan Carl, Martha Raddatz, Pierre Thomas, Rachel Scott, Dick Vitale, Nora O'Donnell, John Dickerson, Robert Costa, Jim Palmer, Nancy Cordes, Jeff Pegues, Tim McCarver, Nicole Killian, Jake Tapper, Anderson Cooper, Dana Bash, Abby Phillip, John King, Mel Allen, Chris Wallace, Gloria Borger, Laura Coates, Manu Raju, Ryan Nobles, Caitlin Collins, Lester Holt, Chuck Todd, Haley Thomas, uh, Governor Chris Christie, Haley Jackson, Kristen Welker, Garrett Hake, Yamish Alcindor, Judy Woodruff, Amno Nawaz, Lisa Desjardins, Jeff Bennett, Donna Brazil, Mary McCord, and Donald Harvin. So that shall be the spiel. But first, objectivity is often used as a North Star in journalism. It's come under attack with critics calling it a force for oppression. I was always told that objectivity was a little dated. Maybe fairness was the better way to think of the journalistic ideal. David Greenberg, professor of history and of journalism and media studies at Rutgers University, has been thinking and writing about the subject of objectivity, guided by objectivity for quite a long time, and he joins us next.
This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Objectivity to journalists is a little like biblical entreaties to the religious. At first, the Bible or the idea of objectivity was meant to be taken literally. You know, the Bible, the literal word of God. Eventually, to most practitioners, objectivity, like biblical decrees, came to be seen as an ideal. Perhaps impossible to achieve, but generally a North Star. And also, the interpretation thereof could be tweaked to take into account the fact that, say, some may twist the meaning of what the Bible says or what objectivity means. It was a malleable enough concept to still guide the practitioner to the right place. It worked as guidance and is a generally useful way to orient and organize one's conduct. But then there was a backlash. And disbelievers said, the word is a lie. We must throw away the Bible wholly and reject its teachings as the opposite of morality. So too has objectivity come under attack, not as inadequate, but as wholly wrong. It is not possible to use. It is not useful. It is in fact, critics say, a force for oppression. David Greenberg has written about this in an essay in the journal Liberties. His essay is called The War on Objectivity in American Journalism. David Greenberg, professor of Rutgers, joins me now. Thanks for coming on. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. So this essay was detailed and learned, but I'm going to start with the Twitter version. Objectivity. Tell me, how did it start and how's it going? You know, people sometimes confuse objectivity with something like factual accuracy. And obviously, journalism should be factually accurate. That's a prerequisite. Uh, but objectivity is a bit more complicated as a concept. Objectivity emerged because journalists in the early 20th century began to realize they could be subjective. They could be biased. Uh, they weren't always capable of delivering just the facts, uh, uh, perfectly true, perfectly accurate, that 
personal prejudices, attachments got in the way. They could be spun by sources. This was the era when public relations and government spin doctors were coming on the scene. So objectivity was a method to correct for one's biases. And so you started to see in journalism certain practices develop. Uh, for example, checking with multiple sources on different sides of an issue so that you're not just being spoon-fed one version of events. Um, you uh, sort of question your own assumptions as best you can. Um, and you try as, as best you can to keep your editorializing out of your copy in order to you know, create a product, create a piece of journalism that is acceptable and recognizable to people of any political uh, persuasion. But in journalism, I think it's particularly challenging because, especially in daily news reporting, which is really what I'm talking about in this essay, in daily news reporting, you're not going to get it perfectly right every time, every day. The nature of deadlines, the complexity of issues that reporters have to convey in sort of simple language to a vast readership, all these issues kind of work against the kind of um, you know, meticulous care that you might ask of a scientist. Uh, so as you say, it, it becomes a North Star. It's an ideal to strive for. It's one that's uh, implemented through a whole body of practices. Um, but it's, it's, it's often confused with the notion that uh, uh, you know, an objective journalist just knows the truth and will never succumb to error or bias. I find it's often confused with many notions, which makes me wonder, then how useful is it? Once a North Star keeps getting confused, is it really much of a North Star? Well, I, I think that's a good question. And there have been efforts over the years to say, let's replace this with fairness or nonpartisanship or neutrality. And each of those terms has slightly different connotations. And if you don't think through what each of them means, you can get into trouble. So a lot of people uh, pointed out, and this is not new to our times, although a lot of people on Twitter seem to think it is, people pointed out that journalists in the effort to be objective could lapse into a kind of slavish neutrality or even-handedness, even when two different sides of the argument don't have um, equal rooting in the facts, right? And we, we call this now both sidesism or, or false, uh, false equivalence or false um, objectivity, perhaps false balance. But this is a critique you see very early on. I have a quote in there from Archibald MacLeish from the 1940s talking about journalists pursuing objectivity in this kind of lazy way. But what I say is that's not the consummation of objectivity, that's the corruption of it. Right, right, let me make an analogy. The scientific method can tell us that this chemical is not harmful when it isn't. I mean, you can p-hack, you can use the quote-unquote scientific method to your ill gains. It doesn't implicate the scientific method, it's just the misuse thereof. Right. And look, you know, uh, the, probably the most famous or infamous example is in the early 2000s when climate change really became an issue. Uh, a lot of journalists who didn't know the science 
did sort of lazily say, okay, there's a Democratic or a liberal position and a Republican conservative position. And the fact that the conservatives were trotting out a very uh, fringe position among scientists sort of denying uh, that climate change was either partly a man-made phenomenon or a significant phenomenon left the impression, and there have been sort of content analyses to this effect, sort of left the impression in too great a number of news stories that this was a much more contested uh, question than, than it really was. Uh, so this is a real problem. That's sort of the Scylla and the Charybdis kind of on the other direction is in the effort to uh, avoid false equivalence, you can veer into editorializing. You can sort of presume the conclusion without fully investigating it. And my view is that the latter is really becoming much more of a hazard today. And that the folks who are saying, well, let's dispense with objectivity because too often it becomes both sidesism, uh, are, are, are going too far with that. So there's a whole series of episodes in the last few years where mainstream media news reporters, you know, people who may be liberal in their private political beliefs, but as professionals have at least historically tried to keep those liberal politics out of their news reporting, have nonetheless kind of gone down their own uh, uh uh, you know, gone into their own insular bubbles, cut themselves off from dissenting arguments, countervailing arguments, treated everything coming out of, say, the conservative world as the equivalent of climate change denial or as the equivalent of QAnon. And so when you have a story like the Hunter Biden laptop story or the lab leak theory of the coronavirus, uh, and, and a whole, a whole bunch of others. These really did not get fully investigated by, and I'm not talking about the, the self-consciously openly liberal media. I'm talking about generally liberal people who try to practice objective journalism. Places like the New York Times or the Associated Press or the Washington Post. Those, those stories did not get as well covered as they should have been because of this growing effort to say, we don't need to look at both sides. We don't need to listen to what's going on in the conservative media or in other spheres that it used to be common practice to pay attention to. I worry that if your totemic examples are the Hunter Biden laptop and the lab leak theory, first of all, the lab leak theory might turn out not to be true. And I am 100% on board that you're not saying it is true or it isn't true. You're just talking about the pursuit of that theory. Um, but I do worry that if those are the examples cited, a person who might say, what's so great about objectivity would say, that, that's what we get. We get better pursuit of, we get Twitter not quashing the Hunter Biden is, a, uh, is kicking money up to Joe Biden angle of the story. I would say that, you know, the big problem is not with one or two huge examples that the media got wrong because they decided on an unobjective conclusion. It's with a thousand stories and the way it shapes reality and the need. I mean, 
objectivity is still mostly practiced by the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and uh, the New Yorker and the Atlantic. But there are thousands of stories where the public is either not getting the full story or, and this is the big thing, the percentage of the public who is very critical of the media as having too much of a liberal bias, just sees over and over and over again their side or another side of the story willfully suppressed. And that creates a tension within the society, a tension that doesn't have to exist if it was just so clear that the quote-unquote mainstream media still used objectivity as the guiding principle. Well, I agree with that. And, you know, in the essay, I do list a handful of other recent examples besides, I don't think I even mentioned the Hunter Biden one. It just sort of came to mind, um, particularly because I think since the essay went to press, it's now been kind of, uh, uh, you know, given more uh, airtime or, 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 you know, space by the Times and the Post and other places. But I have, I have multiple other examples in, in the essay. And I agree with you. Um, these examples are only important as examples of a much broader phenomenon that's taking place across these newspapers. Um, and again, overall, do, I do think that there are many, many journalists, you know, reporters, editors, others at these, you know, very excellent papers that are aspiring to uphold these goals. But I think, you know, look, when, when Trump came in, it was a short time before I started hearing people who are not conservative in any way saying, what's happening at the New York Times? Like, it just feels so biased. And as someone who's written about media for, you know, 25 years, I used to, when people would say here, and I hear people say that, it was usually people on the right and I would go into this whole argument with them. No, they're not really biased. See, they have, there's this concept called professionalism and they're professionals. And it's not about getting the Republicans. It's about getting the story. And yes, you know, if you take a survey, they, they do tend to be liberal in their politics, but they have these professional codes, you know, embodied in objectivity that seek to correct for that. But then suddenly, you know, in the last few years, I could no longer make that defense because it, it, what these people seemed to be saying was true. Um, and again, the critique was now coming not from the right, but just from ordinary New York Times readers who were themselves mostly liberal, who were like, well, yeah, I'm liberal, but I still want my newspaper to be objective. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm picking on the New York Times here, but I think you see it going on in a lot of different arenas. I mean, look at the difference, like, in what CNN's primetime programming lineup looked like 10 years ago compared to today, right? The whole format had changed. You know, they still might have on uh, somebody with um, a non-liberal point of view. But the whole, the whole effort of, if you think about, like, uh, the PBS NewsHour, where you really can have different perspectives and they're engaging in a kind of sober um, give and take. Yeah, sometimes it gets a little argumentative, but you're trying to hear different perspectives, different analyses, so you, the reader or listener, viewer, whatever, can understand it all. You know, CNN gave up on that model in 
the Trump years. And I think, again, that was just indicative of the way that the panic that and, you know, there is there was and still is, I think, a genuine concern about Trump becoming president, being president, becoming president again. So I'm not dismissing that, but it led to a kind of unthinking jettisoning of certain time-honored principles of journalism that I think was unfortunate. I mean, as I say in the essay, objectivity was not Donald Trump's friend. So what do you think of the uh, generational divides on this? I would say that Marty Barron, who was, uh, his last job was editor of the Washington Post, and Dean Piquet, who is in a couple months leaving as editor of the New York Times, more or less believed in the idea of objectivity. Maybe they knew not to use the phrase and they would call it fairness, but they would emphasize over and over again that it's not our job to first come to the conclusion and then fill it in with the facts that uh, support that conclusion. But a younger generation of journalists, maybe two generations younger, does seem to me, and maybe this is just the loudest voices, but does seem to me to wholly object to that way of thinking. So does it seem that way to you? Do you see evidence maybe that journalists in their 20s actually do want to pursue a uh, fact-based, wherever the fact leads us, way of journalism? They're maybe just not brave enough to object to uh, Wesley Lowry. Um, Where do you think this is going to go, given that demographics is destiny, even within the pages of big newspapers? Well, I do agree with you. There's a big generational shift. Um, The question I think that we really can't answer is whether um, those, you know, just as people's politics tend to change somewhat as they get older, you know, there's a famous quote from, I don't know if it's Clemenceau or whoever, that, uh, you know, someone without, um, who isn't a radical when he's young has no heart and someone who's not a conservative when he's old has no brain. I, and I'm probably botching the quote. So, so will, will these younger people, as they continue on in the profession, as they get socialized into the profession's norms, you know, as they see the virtues of objectivity as a method and set of practices in reporting, will they come around, you know, will they, uh, you know, we, we all start off with uh, a certain arrogance of youth and an assumption that we know exactly what's wrong with the system and it should be changed, you know, immediately. And then over time, we tend to temper that. So I, I think we don't know whether this generational um, difference in attitudes will play out in a kind of radical transformation of places like the Times and the Post and the AP. I think so far, what we're seeing is that there's a struggle on. (laughs) And I think we have seen some changes um, and some, you know, despite, I think, I agree with you that people like Dean Baquet and probably Joe Kahn, his his now named successor, do believe in, in these values and do wanna uphold them. But despite that, you know, I think everyone would agree there's been a change in what your daily New York Times looks like. David Greenberg is a professor of history and of journalism and media studies at Rutgers. He has written books such as Republic of Spin and Inside History of the American Presidency. I understand he's working on a biography of John Lewis. And his latest work in the online journal Liberties is The War on Objectivity in American Journalism. David, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. It's been fun talking. Thank you.
And now the spiel. When you've just witnessed a stew of mendacity, bravery, peril, and insidiousness, there are few words to encapsulate all of it. So many, many pundits reacting to the proceedings of the select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol chose one very common but powerful word. Powerful testimony. I think that makes it much, much more powerful. I think a very powerful moment. I did think that was powerful, seeing Ivanka's face up there. I could have played a Chuck Todd-only montage of six powerfuls in 90 seconds, but you know what? I'm going to tease that until the end. That's why you'll stay. There, what I just played, you heard Jessica Tarlov of Fox, Nora O'Donnell of CBS, and two ABC voices who I will play a little more of just to give you some sense of what exactly it was they thought was powerful. First off, Jonathan Carl. Well, I, I thought that really the, the powerful moment, I mean, there were, there were many of them, but to hear uh, Bill Barr say in such blunt, war, blunt terms that there was nothing to the allegations of fraud in the election, that he had directly told that uh, to, to President Trump, and then to hear Ivanka Trump say that she respects Bill Barr and that she accepted what he had to say, uh, I, I think a very powerful moment. Indeed, Bill Barr is saying under oath what he said in his book that he advised the president that there was no election fraud does go to the very difficult task of establishing that Trump knowingly advanced charges of fraud when there wasn't any fraud, the mens rea aspect of establishing state of mind. I do think Ivanka Trump's tape was not so, what is the word, powerful. Her saying, I respect Attorney General Barr, so I accepted what he was saying, accepted as true, accepted that that was the guy's opinion, accepted as one of many acceptable points of view. Acceptance, like the tactics of the former Attorney General, a low bar. Chris Christie was one of the few Republicans represented on CNN, MSNBC, or any of the networks. And indeed, he offered useful analysis about what might land with a Republican who doesn't believe the election was stolen, but isn't necessarily a never-Trumper. There's no evidence of fraud. There's no evidence that this election was stolen. And, and I think, you know, it's one thing to hear it for Republicans, to hear it from Democrats, but to hear it not only from Republicans, but from the people who ran the president's campaign, the people closest to him in the White House and his own family. I think that makes it much, much more powerful for Republicans and Republican-leaning independents to hear those things, David. And so we'll see what goes on from here. But those are some very powerful words from people who were part of the Trump administration. If you wanted to find other conservative voices, Fox shunted them off their main channel to their business channel. Former Fox host Chris Wallace was a panelist on CNN. I agree with his assessment, which begins with the requisite adjective. Well... We'd seen videos before. Uh, I remember that the impeachment uh, House impeachment managers put together a very powerful video before the second Senate trial. Uh, But this does not lose its capacity to shock and to disgust you and to horrify you. The idea of this mob coming to the to the symbol, as it was called, the citadel of our democracy, breaching the walls and going in and attacking, talking about uh, hang Mike Pence, uh, hunting for Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House. And, you know, there was also some, you you look back at some of the things that were said, uh, Benny Thompson, the chairman, this was a sprawling, multi-step conspiracy to overturn the election, and Donald Trump was at the center of the conspiracy. Uh, Liz Cheney, those who invaded the Capitol 
were motivated by what Trump told them. Trump lit the fuse for the attack. It was a, a, a very powerful, very well-produced, if you will, two-hour presentation. I still have questions. I, if you were horrified by the events of January 6th and what we've learned since, you were certainly horrified by what you saw. Uh, if you haven't been convinced of that in the last year and a half, I'm not sure if this or anything will change your mind. Of course, if you weren't convinced, it might be because you don't get your news from CNN or any of the other networks. The Fox News Channel, as we said, played their usual primetime fare, but over on Newsmax, whoa boy, they made a big deal of airing the hearing, unlike Fox, because they're such great journalists, but during testimony, they invited on guests like Alan Dershowitz to say, this spectacle is a sham, only Newsmax viewers literally couldn't be spectators because guests and hosts were yammering it up during the hearing. Here's Newsmax anchor Rob Schmidt afterwards. So many critical details were not shown tonight. That was the design of this. That's why we just did the last two hours. And I know a lot of people probably didn't want to see that hearing on Newsmax, but we are a news organization. We are going to do the news, and that's why we did it. And we gave you the other side. We gave you the cross-examination that you aren't going to get anywhere else. You're just not. Trust there will be no hearing, though, into how this administration got inflation so wrong, a problem that's affecting every single American in this country. There will be no hearings into the summer of 2020 and what their rhetoric created two years ago, the mayhem that we saw then. Let's cue the videotape. Let's not. There are a lot of things that weren't selected by the select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol, like everything other than that. It wouldn't be surprising that they didn't get into inflation, orcas at SeaWorld, or the whole Felicia Sanmez sitch. Newsmax coverage was pretty much blown coverage, uh, fiction in a way, uh, total inaccuracy. Eh, I'll let you decide. Schmidt here interviewing Trump lawyer Alina Haba. They didn't mention they didn't mention um, Brian Sicknick, Officer Brian Sicknick. Um, but they didn't they didn't mention the young lady that was killed either, the former Air Force veteran. They didn't mention her, of course. They did not mention Brian Sicknick, who the media and Democrats spent months after the attack telling Americans died after being attacked by by insurrectionists inside the building. And then we learned, you know, months after that, that, oh, he had a stroke. Um, they still tried to carry that rhetoric for a long time. They didn't mention him tonight. At least I, I didn't hear it. And our producing team didn't hear it. Obviously, there's a lot going on here. But I thought it was very interesting to leave him out. That's a big mea culpa right there. That, but that's the country we live in now. Everybody has to do their own research. So I did deep, rigorous research of actually watching the hearing. The family of Officer Sicknick as well, who's here tonight. That was Liz Cheney. I was holding that line for a while. There weren't many of us over there. Um, and Officer Sicknick was behind me. And that was Officer Carolyn Edwards, who was attacked, concussed, and got back up to fight the mob again. Her description of what she endured and what happened to Officer Sicknick was unforgettable, provided you bothered to pay attention. And I turned, and it was Officer Sicknick with his head in his hands. And he was ghostly pale, um, which I, I figured at that point that he had been sprayed. And I was um, concerned. My, uh, you know, cop, cop alarm bells went off um, because if you get sprayed with pepper spray, you're going to turn red. He turned um, just about as pale as this sheet of paper. That 
that right there, that was what made the hearing so, you guessed it, powerful. The footage, the testimony, the facts are inherently compelling. Some credited the great production value. That surpassed my expectations, I have to say, just as a as an argument, as a story, as a piece of television programming, as someone who makes television for a living, that surpassed my expectations. Chris Hayes's MSNBC colleague Joy Reid said the images were so harrowing, she concluded that riot was an insufficient word to describe what she was seeing. This was a war <laughs> being made upon the United States by the president of the United States. I don't feel we need to hyperbolize this sufficiently calamitous event. And I also agreed with Lisa Desjardins of the PBS NewsHour. It was compelling, but the format didn't exactly transcend the genre of congressional hearing. This was a very methodical hearing. I wasn't sure how much Hollywood we were going to get in this kind of hearing. We'd heard a lot about the production value of it, but there still was a very methodical and kind of slow pace. For that reason, and the reason of general media siloing, I don't think we'll see massive polling shifts on the generic congressional ballot after this hearing. I don't think many elected Republicans will newly break ranks. I do think the hearing, A, tried very hard to erase the Trump state of mind defense, but I don't think it totally worked, at least if what they showed us was the most damning evidence they have. It is a frustration that we had a president so addled that he could legitimately claim, duh, I really thought the election was stolen. And even if his advisors contradicted him, as we were shown, they did, might not be enough to establish mens rea. I do think the committee did, however, go far in making real villains out of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, rather than allowing those groups to be regarded as something like goofy LARPers. Henceforth, the first association upon hearing the name Proud Boys made just shift from ridiculous to dangerous. But because of our politics and our populace, I have to say the walls cannot be said to be closing in. But the animals contained within those walls seem even more beastly than they did yesterday. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara, assistant producer, powerful in that role. Joel Patterson, senior producer, produces with sufficient power to fuel the entire enterprise. These gentlemen did what? Four montages? Here now, a montage of their montages. No, no, I'm 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 joking, guys. They they think they think I'm serious. Whenever I call for a montage, they go into montage mode. But the siren is an amalgam of a bunch of different sirens. <laughs> Anyway, those guys did a great job today, as did Michelle Pesca. She made the Power 100 of Powerful Women in podcast, COOing. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening. They certainly made it very powerful, what I'd call an opening statement. Powerful, a powerful, powerful first hour. The most powerful opening we've had of the three, and I think those other two were pretty powerful.